Amen. Thank you, Matt. I appreciate that. Uh, if you would be turning in your copies of God's Word to Esther, chapter 3 will be in the entire chapter this morning. Uh, and as you're turning there, let me give you the key truth that I would love for us to walk away with. Is this, is that God calls us to live in wise humility for the edification and benefit of ourselves and others. Let me say that again. God calls us to live in wise humility for the edification and benefit of ourselves and others. If you would give your attention to the reading of God's word, this is Esther chapter 3. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day, and he would not listen to them, they told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So, as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast pur, that is, they cast lots, before Haman day after day. And they cast it month after month till the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, this is a certain people, the, there, there is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws, so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. If it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed, and I will pay ten thousand talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business, that they may put it into the king's treasuries. So the king took his signet ring from his hand, and he gave it to Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, the money is given to you, the people also to do with them as it seems good to you. Then the king's scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month, and an edict according to all that Haman commanded was written to the king's satraps and to the governors over all the provinces and to the officials of all the peoples, to every province in its own script and every people in its own language. It was written in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed with the king's signet ring. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instruction to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province by proclamation to all the peoples to be ready for that day. The courier went out hurriedly by order of the king, and the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel. And the king and Haman sat down to drink. But the city of Susa 
was thrown into confusion. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, as we step into this, we've got to remember that as we're going through the book of Esther, what we're doing is not necessarily trying to draw uh, exact parallels from the text itself, but actually to see how uh, the Lord our God and Christ himself is very different than these things, right? And this is a, another example of how Haman responds to a slight and how we're going to recognize how differently the Lord our God chooses to deal with us his enemies. That's going to be very important for us as we step into this. But it's also important for us to recognize that we have the capacity to be as evil, as wicked as Haman, right? So the first question I have for us is, how has your foolish pride proved costly to you and those you love? When has your arrogance kind of backed you into a corner or put you into a circumstance where you behaved in a way that was either cruel or wicked or, or lost your temper or failed to display in some form or fashion the righteous character of the Lord our God as declared in Exodus 34, 6 and 7. Or you could look at the fruit of the Spirit. All of us, I can guarantee you, are guilty either internally or externally, which, by the way, on the internal, what does Jesus have to say about that which goes on in your heart according to the Sermon on the Mount? You don't get away with it because you just didn't let it out necessarily, right? You still need for that to be mortified and repented of because sooner or later it's going to come out, is it not? And so we want to be a people who are swift to repent because we can bear fruits, plural, in keeping with repentance because of what Christ has done for us, right? That's why we say all the time, when you sin and you will, which way do you run? If you run to the throne of grace to receive what you need, both mercy and grace in a time of trouble, then you understand the gospel. If you run away from the throne of grace thinking that you've got to do something to get yourself cleaned up enough to be welcomed before the throne, thinking that somehow you can clean yourself better than Jesus did is essentially what we would be saying, then you don't understand the gospel, right? Romans 5, we stand at peace temporar temporarily or eternally. Better be eternal. We stand at peace with God and are welcome before him at all times to receive the things that we need. Now, I didn't say that you can come brash and arrogant and demand a hearing as if you deserve something. What I am saying is that you should come boldly knowing you have been boldly forgiven. And that is a great gift of freedom to us as God's people. And when did that start, by the way? When did he start loving us? What does Ephesians 2 tell us? When we were enemies. We failed to bow to him. We failed to pay him homage. And we still do if we're not honest, right? Like if we're, if we're honest, we still struggle to give the Lord what little bit that he asked for. We still struggle to pay attention and, and keep up with our devotional lives and pray as we think we ought and give as generously as we could, right? We still struggle at this. And yet, does God say, depart from me for I have never known you? No, not yet. He is a just God, and there will come a day of just judgment. Don't get that twisted. However, it's very important that he is tarrying, according to 2 Peter, because he loves us. He wants the family to get bigger and bigger, not have him wiped out in one day, as Haman will declare. So, as we step into this text, there's some important things for us to take note of. First off, the name Haman sounds a lot like the Hebrew word for wrath. 
which as we have noticed in the book of Esther, names really mean something. And so we don't know why, but King Ahasuerus has decided that Haman needs to be his second in command, his right-hand man over all of the other officials in his kingdom. Now, this description of Haman is one of only two in the book of Esther where their tribe, where they're from, is noted. And the other person that was noted was Mordecai, who's a Benjamite. Now, that becomes really important to this story because Haman is an Agagite. The last time that a Benjamite and Agagite had any sort of interaction was in 1 Samuel 15. If you remember, King David was supposed to fulfill God's curse against the Amalekites, which uh, rises in Exodus 17. So the people of God have just celebrated the first Passover and been delivered through the Red Sea crossing. The first people that they encounter are the Amalekites. The Amalekites were none too happy to see this new people coming through the wilderness, and they fought them. And because they uh, tried to oppose not just the people of God, so why were they being coming out of Egypt? They were coming out of Egypt so that they could worship the Lord their God, right, in freedom. Well, the Amalekites are not just opposing a people. They're opposing the God of the universe, the creator God, who had declared this for his people. And so he curses them. Well, Saul fails to do, in fact, they all failed to do what they were supposed to. You remember Samuel comes in pretty grumpy. He's like, what is the bleeding of sheep in my ears? What am I hearing? Weren't you supposed to lay it to waste? And he notices that King Agag, father of the Agagites, is still alive and in a horrible circumstance, hacks him to death in front of everybody to fulfill what the Lord had said. And so at that point, God, it says, was sorry that he had made Saul king. In fact, it says it several times. Well, what we see here is that ultimately it's being signaled to the people of God that God who is faithful is going to keep the promise that he made in Exodus 17. He is going to finish what had been started. And so this would signal to the Jews, even though it sounds just horrific, right, At the end of the chapter, it says that Susa is just sent into confusion by this edict that's passed around. While it would have been fearsome, there are things within this story that would have signaled to them, I'm here, I will deliver you. That's a skill that we need to cultivate as God's people. We need to learn how to be able to see where God is at work, even in difficult circumstances, and recognize where he is signaling to us, I love you. I am near, and I will deliver you. And so, Haman the Agagite is, is, in fact, it comes from King Ahasuerus. You're supposed to bow whenever he comes into the king's court. And obviously, it's a large enough group of people that he didn't really notice Haman at first, right? And so, the, the other folks turned to Haman, and they, they must have liked him to warn him ahead of time and said, Hey, man, what are you doing? Why are you not bowing? And it says they pleaded with him day after day. And so he says, no, I'm not doing it. Now, a lot of commentators really wrestle with, was he being prideful? Was he being foolish in some way, shape, or form that's going to end up being costly? Well, here's the good news. We don't have to answer that question. Because God answers the question of his faithfulness on the other side. Now, I'm not encouraging you to go be 
foolish and do whatever you want and hope God's going to work it out. He is, but it might be at great cost to you and those you love. So be careful with that. But in this case, there seems to be an indication. There's just one little bit of information that seems to signal that Mordecai, who had previously been incredibly wise, why would he suddenly lose his mind over having to bow for Haman? Haman's not claiming he's a god. This isn't a Daniel situation, right? When Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and Daniel refused to bow, it's because King Nebuchadnezzar said, I am God. Haman's not declaring that, right? However... It says, and remember, he had told Esther, don't tell them you're Jewish. Don't do it. But he chooses to tell the people in the king's gate that this is why he will not bow. I am a Jew. Which that information becomes something that gets passed along to Haman and becomes difficult. Now, again, commentators wrestle with, was it because of some religious reason? Was it, was it because he knew that he was a Benjamite and that, that, he, that Haman was an Agagite? There's, that's, that's probably the greatest possibility, is that he knew the distinction and he refused that no Benjamite would ever bow the knee before an Agagite, because that would be to dishonor the Lord's promise and faithfulness. That's possible. But the author doesn't tell us why. Where's the emphasis? Not on what Mordecai does, but on what God is doing in the background, the hidden God who reveals himself and through his faithful keeping of his promises to protect and love and keep his people, right? To never let them go. So you notice when Haman gets wind of what's going on, and they made sure to tell him, uh, and by the way, Mordecai's a Jew, he is furious. Now, does the punishment that he comes up with fit the crime? See, we see that again over and over and over in the book of Esther, and we see it throughout empire-type stuff, right? Can't help ourselves. We leverage things and use it to, to have an overblown or hyperbolic response. You see it all the time. And so, so here, Haman, instead of, I'm not just going to kill Mordecai. I'm going to wipe out his people. Now, why do you think he's doing that? Was it just purely anti-Semitism? Or which is possible, or is he also putting everybody else on notice for the rest of his life? You cross me, I will wipe out your entire lineage. Think of the power of that, in a sense. And so, interestingly, he starts to cast lots to figure this out, which I find very interesting that he would cast lots. As we know from the book of Proverbs, who controls how the lot falls? God does. And what's even more interesting is when he chooses to start the casting of lots. If you notice, it's in the first month, the month of Nisan. Well, the reason that that's important is because when does the Passover occur? In the month of Nisan. And it's, it's postulated that he was casting lots right before the Jews would have celebrated the Passover. Now, let's think back. When the first Passover was, they encounter the Amalekites first. There is something poetic about what God is doing here. Go ahead and cast your lots against my people. I've done this before. I will deliver them again. You don't control how it falls. And he does it for 12 months, right? Really takes his time. It looks like he's being wise, doesn't it? He's not rushing to a decision. Well, no, he's already made the decision. He's just trying to decide when he's going to kill them and how he's going to do it. So he goes to the king and notice he offers this exorbitant sum of money. Now, to our ears, 10,000 silver talents may not sound, about, sound like much, but it would have been actually half of their GDP. 
So who, who you, you economists in here, what's GDP? Gross domestic product. That's what they would have earned in a year. So this is half of what Ahasuerus' kingdom produces in a year. So it's quite the sum of money. Now, do we think that Haman had that much money? What do you think he was counting on? Well, in the plunder and destruction of the Jews, he was counting on them paying for their own death. Interesting. Now, notice that King Ahasuerus, not dissimilar to the Pharisees who doesn't want blood money, right? Remember when, when, when the 30 pieces are returned to the Pharisees, what do they do with it? Do they take it back? No, and they are lovers of money, according to Jesus in Luke chapter 16. They love money almost as much as they say they love God. Well, they didn't want that blood money. They let that go. In the same way, King Ahasuerus is like, mm, nah, you keep it for yourself. That's blood money. You and all who, who take care of it, but go ahead. And notice how Haman overemphasizes something, right? As we have seen this before, this happened with the first time that Vashti was cast out. There was an overemphasis on what was actually happening. It says the Jews keep their own laws. Is that true? Yes, it is. However, the laws that they keep, would they be good or bad for empire? They would actually be good for empire. Because what do the Jewish laws say? Don't steal. Don't murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't, don't cheat anybody. They would have actually been good citizens of the empire in the keeping of their law. If you know anything about the Persian Empire, they actually enjoyed a diversity of people and things. They actually tolerated quite a bit of this. But Haman leverages it as if they're going against the king, right? He's using this fear-mongering, which I want to caution you people of God. All right, I'm going to pause here. As you see all the election signs being put up outside, and there's a primary coming, and then some other kind of election coming a little bit later, I'm not sure, in November, I think, that's going to displace us. Anyway, don't worry about that part. I am deeply concerned about the rhetoric that I am hearing out of both camps. It's, ideas have consequences. You cannot talk about elimination and not hear Haman's language. What does it mean to eliminate someone, to annihilate something, to put an end to something? What does that mean? How do we do that? In whose hands do we get to decide how that will be meted out? Well, I've been reading a book on Israel by Daniel Gordas. For those of you who have any interest in the current state of Israel, and I mean state as in statehood, uh, it is a fascinating read. Well, in 1903-1904 in Krizhnev, there was a pogrom against the Jews issued. And in three days, 50,000 Jews lost their lives before they could rein it in. Now, the pogrom didn't actually say, kill anybody. It didn't. It didn't actually say that. But it used the language of elimination and other kinds of words. And so a mob of teenagers got together and started throwing stones at first and just destroying property. Well, their bloodlust couldn't be satiated, and more people joined them. They got more and more murderous, and it got more and more awful. And it took, that was on day one, by the way, going into midnight into day two. And they let it go on. The officials didn't step in until day three. Why? Well, I mean, it wasn't exactly the pogrom, but it kind of fit, didn't it? And they, the blood's on... Their hands, not ours. 
So be very careful, people of God, that you're not being used as an ideological instrumentation for something you don't want to pay for in this life or the next. Be very careful that you are thinking biblically, that you are thinking Christologically. If you have any questions about that, I'm happy to discuss these things with you personally, or we can get a small group together and have a discussion as well. But I will never, and I don't care if I like the candidate, they start using the language of this kind of thing, elimination, annihilation, and all this kind of stuff, you've lost me. Even if how you're going to vote and do benefits me. Because sooner or later, that bill comes due. So we need to be careful that we aren't recognizing in a text as ancient as Esther in chapter 3, the very dangers that were before them are before us. And we are in danger of losing our identity if we're not careful. That's who we are in Christ. And so, here Haman uses this hyperbolic and this, this fake news and all this kind of stuff to whip into a frenzy, right? The king, and the king says, yeah, yeah, kill them all. Have the signet ring. And he writes the edict, and it takes a while. Like, the interesting thing about this is all of this takes a while to unfold. Even the sending out of the edict into the provinces, remember, there was like 127 of these things. It would take three months to make it everywhere it needed to go. And notice they are preparing for a day that is a year from then. They're in the first month when they cast Purim, and they're talking about doing it in the 12th month, in the month of Adar. And so think of the preparation and, and the vileness that, that was being stirred up and whipped into a frenzy. You had something very similar that went on in Rwanda. As for two years, they were gathering lawnmower blades, machetes, hammers, things they would use to slaughter their very neighbors and, by the way, fellow church members. Rwanda at the time when the genocide occurs was roughly, arguably, 94% Christian by their own admission. How do you have something like that happen in a nation that proclaimed it was Christian by and large? Well, you don't want to know the answer to that question. And if you don't want to know the answer to that question, then we need to be ambassadors of reconciliation, right? And we need to be careful with our words and our ideas. We need to be careful with our hatred. We need to be very careful with our hatred. So as Haman goes on, and, and this, is, this is happening, this is getting out into the province, notice that there is confusion. It says they are thrown into confusion. Now, what do Haman and King Ahasuerus do? After they've called for the slaughter of young and old, men, women, and children, and the complete annihilation. Notice that language that Haman uses. It's not good enough for him to say kill. He says kill, annihilate, and, and even has another word. Because he wants to make sure, don't miss this. I want them all dead. They sit down and have a drink. They sit down and have a drink after they've made the decision to slaughter. We don't know how many Jews there are still in this particular diaspora in exile. It could be as many as 100,000, could be more. But to think that that has to occur in one day. One day. Think about what that would do to the hearts of the Persians themselves who would act this out. I don't know about you, but I ain't never killed anybody. And I certainly haven't done it where I had to do it up close, hand to hand. And so it does something to you. If you've ever seen any of this kind of thing, I've, I've seen missionaries who were beaten to death in India, and it broke me. 
I hope to never see anything like that ever, ever again. But it would do something to the Persians, Persians themselves that would be dark and destructive. It was unleashing the whirlwind in essence. Not just for the Jews, but for the Persian Empire. This would have been utterly awful and destroyed them from within. In fact, God, because of his love for the Persian people, is going to step in. Not just for the Jews, by the way. Him stepping in is, is, not all, is not just for the Jews, it's for the Abrahamic covenant. It's because he loves the Persians as well. And he doesn't want them to have to carry that kind of shame and guilt. He is a good God. So unlike Haman, who demands the destruction of an entire people for the failure of one person, God sends his son to die, to suffer the death that we deserve because we don't pay homage, because we don't bow the knee, because we don't love God. He chose to love us, according to Ephesians 2, while we were his enemies. Don't miss that. That ain't soft language. Enemies worthy of death, by the way. It would have been just. And yet, he sends his son to die, to, to step in and, 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 and take on his wrath in full because that, that he's showing his justice must be fulfilled. He's not just uh, ignoring sin in a grandfatherly way. No, he is giving his son for our eternal lives. And notice that the politicians of this world they won't suffer what they get you to do. They won't suffer for it. No, they'll just find some island to hide away on, or they've got some bunker already built somewhere to hide in so that they don't have to pay for what they're asking you to pay for. And yet God chooses to pay for what we could never pay for. That's what Easter is all about. And not only does he take away our sin, but he fills us with resurrected newness of life. So that between the now and the not yet, we can taste further and see how good he is. To be prepared for the new heavens and new earth that's coming when Christ returns. So praise be to God. He is nothing like the earthly rulers of this world. And if nothing else, may chapter 3 help you see a little bit better how much God loves you and how much he's willing to do. And he's nothing like the rulers of this world. Listen to what Mervyn Brenneman says about this text. Identification with God's people can result in hardship. Hatred and bitterness were at the root of Haman's quest for power. For him, power rested in the complete destruction of the Jews. Haman had not yet encountered the power of their God. But he's going to. And who all does it cost, if you know the end of the story? He unleashes the whirlwind on his own family. Not only will he hang, but all ten of his sons. Spoiler alert, by the way. I should have said that first. Not only, not only his ten sons, but his entire lineage will be wiped from the face of the earth. Based on his arrogance and his pride. Based on his foolishness. His unwillingness to bow to the Lord our God. Let us not be that foolish. So let me ask you a couple of questions that maybe are for Monday. These may not be your old Lord's Day Sabbath questions. This might be something you look at when you, 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 you know, have had a chance to worship and, and be renewed. In what areas of your life are you struggling under the burden of foolish pride and hatred of others? Who do you think ought to be wiped off the face of this planet? Who made you God? 
right? Where should you wisely run to receive wise counsel and help in reference to this? Now, this is the gospel. Now, that's a hard question, right, to wrestle with our pride, our hatred, because there's some really unjust circumstances going on in this world of ours. And it would be really easy for us to want those people to be wiped out off the face of the earth. But who are we to say that the Moabites should have been completely wiped out? Because with the Moabites wiped out, who do we not have? Ruth. Christ, ultimately. Right? So who are we to say who deserves to live and to die in this regard? Let's be careful that we don't fail to recognize that the Lord works in the most awful of people. Think about Saul, not the king, but the Pharisee. He held the coats of those who were stoning to death men, women, and children who were Christian. You have any idea of what it takes to stand there and look on in pride and arrogance and joy as someone is being stoned to death? And yet, a guy that we would say, if we knew him then, (laughs) ain't no way. God, you need to put that dog down. He chooses instead to convert him from Saul to Paul and plants churches out of this man. Right? And you may say, well, where was the justice in that? No, there was much cost to Paul and even more cost to Jesus who died for Paul. And so let's be really careful with our hatred. Let's be really careful with our arrogance because it is costly not just to us, but to everyone we love, everyone we care about in our spheres of influence, suffer because of these things. And instead, let us ask, Lord, how might you help me look more like the Jesus who came and died for me, rose from the dead for me, is interceding for me right now, filled me with the Holy Spirit, and is coming again to call me to himself to say, well done, good and faithful servant, and make all things new. That's the question, isn't it? And so, as we conclude the sermon for today, my hope is, is that what we would recognize is in contrast to Haman, how deeply God loves us, how much he gave up for us, and how much he longs to have rebels and fail, people who fail to worship and people who fail to pay homage be part of his family so that we can worship and pay homage for our joy, the life of the world, and his glory. Amen? All right, let's pray. Father, thank you. For the contrast, thank you that you look nothing like Haman. You operate nothing like King Ahasuerus. You are a faithful God. You also don't operate like Mordecai. You are wiser still. You, Father, have done everything necessary to save and redeem your people. Thank you. May we be able this day to take great joy in that reality. Help us grow and knowing more deeply how much we are loved so that we can in turn love you and love our neighbors in a way that is edifying and encouraging and ultimately wise and humble. Thank you, Lord, that you would invite us into this story. You would invite us into this story even though we were enemies. We were at enmity with you. We hated you, and yet you loved us. Thank you. In Christ's name, amen.